even though there there is concern within some of the opposition parties about some of the policies that Erdogan was putting into place, there was not a desire for a military overthrow as a means of dealing with it. Well, it's Thanksgiving week here in the United States, and today we're talking turkey. Of course, in this case, I'm referring to the nation, not the bird. For more than 70 years, Turkey has set an example for what a successful, secular Muslim democracy can look like. But today it grapples with perhaps more challenges, both from within and without, than ever before. Civil war in Syria has brought millions of refugees over its borders. A recent coup attempt by Turkey's own military leaders shook its democratic foundations. And the government response in the aftermath has many questioning its commitment to human rights. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're going to try to unwrap some of these challenges with the help of Dr. Amanda Sloat, who recently left her post at the U.S. State Department, where she was the point person on Turkey. She's here on campus for a seminar co-sponsored by the Kennedy School's Ash Center and the Middle East Initiative. Dr. Sloat, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in the post-World War II period, there was perhaps no better example for a secular, democratic, Muslim country uh, than Turkey. Yet there are questions about where Turkey is heading. Can you explain what's happened? That's a, a good good general question to, to discuss what's been happening over the, the last 10 years. Um, I think, as, as you said, certainly when um, Erdogan, the current president, uh, took office in 2002, there was a lot of hope and expectation about what he and his uh, AKP party were planning to do. And I think certainly initially there were some very significant um, reforms and, and initiatives that, that his party brought forward in terms of dealing with the economy, uh, which had really suffered the year before, um, initiating some um, initiating EU accession talks, uh, beginning some some peace talks with the, the Kurds. Uh, he certainly made a lot of progress in terms of developing infrastructure in the country, and, and significantly there, there was a strong economic development in, in the country. And so I think this made him quite popular domestically, uh, and it also raised a lot of hope within the United States and within Europe about having a, a moderate Islamic country within Europe surging as a, a bridge to the Middle East that, that we could work with. Um, as you'll remember, President Obama's first trip overseas actually in 2009 was to, to Turkey. And, and there was a lot of uh, hope about Turkey's ability to serve as an effective partner to the United States. Certainly, as you have said, within the last couple of years, there has been more concern about the direction that, that Turkey was going, uh, concern about whether Erdogan was seeking to lead the country in a more authoritarian direction in terms of uh, the, the crackdown of the Gezi Park protests from a couple of years ago, which involved some some civic protests at some decisions that the government was making. Uh, some questions have been raised about the direction of their foreign policy. Uh, they went from a foreign policy of uh, zero problems with neighbors to, as some people have said more recently, uh, we now have zero neighbors without problems. Uh, and, and also what he was doing in terms of um, seeking to, to uh, put into place uh, policies that were uh, more restrictive on civil society organizations. So one piece of it is is questions about the general trajectory that that the country has been moving in. 
the second part is related to to what's happened more recently within the last couple of months in in the wake of the the coup attempt, and what what that means for the direction of of Turkey going forward as as well. Because I think there there is a, a potential inflection point here in terms of how Turkey responds to to recent events. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about that coup attempt. This happened in July of 2016, just a few months ago, really, uh, and it, it involved. Tanks in the streets, uh, fighter jets bombing parliament, uh, and 241 people died in this in this attempt. Um, can you describe what happened with the coup? The first thing I, I would like to say is is I think it's it's useful, especially for an American audience, to to think about what happened in the coup in in American attempts. Uh, if this had happened in the United States, you would have F-16s doing sonic booms over Manhattan. You would have tanks blocking off the Brooklyn Bridge in Manhattan. You would have the Congress building bombed. You would have the White House damaged. And you would have our president within about 15 to 30 minutes of being captured or killed. So this was a very significant event. And I think as a result, it's caused considerable psychological trauma within Turkey and Turkish society. And I think that's something that's not always fully understood or appreciated in the United States or or outside Turkey, because a lot of people We'll jump very quickly from those events to looking specifically at the purges and the government's reaction to the coup. And so I think in order to understand some of the government's reaction, you first need to at least appreciate the the magnitude of, of what happened and the the psychological impact that it's 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 had on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, of who was responsible, um, I think there's there's general consensus that there's there's evidence linking followers of Fatullah Gulen. Uh, Fatullah Gulen is an Islamic cleric uh, who is currently resident in the United States in in Pennsylvania, and the the strong belief is that it was followers of him who were uh, responsible for the the coup attempt. Uh, at the moment, it is less clear if there is compelling legal evidence that links Gulen himself to the, the coup attempt. Uh, but it also seems beyond these these Gulenists, there was a broader anti-Erdogan coalition that was involved. If you look at the number of generals uh, who were arrested in the, the coup attempt, it suggests it was wider than, than simply um, Gulenists. Uh, and also, so it, it predominantly involves uh, more... Kemalist-oriented generals. Uh, so when Ataturk founded the modern Turkish state in the 1920s, uh, his approach was to have a very secular-oriented state. And so the military in Turkey since that time has seen itself as the defender of the secular Turkish state, the secular constitution. And the Turkish military has been involved in coups in the past in Turkey as a means of defending this this Turkish secular state. So it seems with the the coup attempt, there was this Gulenist core, uh, but then there also were were some of these secular generals that were acting within this this longer tradition of uh, defending a a secular state within Turkey. Um, So why was this necessary? Leading up to the coup, in, in the just fairly uh, recently before that, um, there had been a series of elections where CHP, the um, opposition party against President Erdogan's AKP, um, had actually made fairly significant gains. Uh, they hadn't taken power necessarily, but they seemed to be on the move, so to speak. Um, 
didn't that signal that perhaps the uh, the more we'll say authoritarian impulses, the Gezi Park type things that Erdogan had pushed for, didn't that signal that perhaps the country had been moving away from that? So I would say a couple things on that. And this goes back to the question of who was involved in the coup attempt and what their motivation was. Uh, for the Gulenists who were involved, uh, part of the, the timing for the middle of July was driven by what they anticipated coming in August. So in August, the military does these annual reviews where people are promoted, people are reassigned, and people are also removed from their position. And there was a suspicion that Gulenists had been identified within the military and were going to be removed from their positions in August. So therefore, if you're going to perpetuate some sort of coup attempt, you need to do this in July uh, before these these August purges come. Uh, second, if you look at, at the more Kamalist secular military officers um, within the, the, the coup attempt, they, I think, within the longer history of, of Turkey, had some of these concerns about the way that the country was moving. But it also looks like they were the first to start peeling away from the coup attempt as it was unfolding, uh, particularly when they saw that the military was was firing on civilians, which is something that had not happened in previous attempt, and when they saw that there was not broad popular support for the coup attempt, which was also something that had not happened in in previous coups. Uh, and I think, as as you said, one of the main reasons why the the coup failed is that there just was not broad public support for the the coup. Uh, I think elections in Turkey generally have been. Um, free in terms of voters being able to articulate their desire for who they want to see elected. Not necessarily always fair in the sense that you don't have broad access always by the opposition to, to media and some use of state resources. But there was not a suggestion that there was ballot box manipulation in terms of who people voted for. In the election that, that you were citing, the AKP, the governing party, got almost 50 percent of the vote. And so there is genuine support uh, within the country by, by almost uh, um, you know 50 percent of the, the population for Erdogan and his government. Also strikingly, the parliament met after the coup attempt and all of the four main political parties within the parliament, including the CHP and the other opposition parties, agreed on a statement condemning the coup. And so even though there, there is concern within some of the opposition parties, within some of the more liberal segments of Turkish society about some of the policies that Erdogan was putting into place, there was not a desire for a military overthrow as a means of dealing with it. People very much wanted to stay within the democratic process. Mm -hmm. Those liberal elements, like I said, they had kind of been making gains electorally. Uh, has the political situation changed since the coup? I imagine, you know, you, you compare to what it would look like in the United States. I imagine if that happened in the United States, uh, there would be a great rallying around the president, regardless of party. There would be, uh, you know, essentially what we saw after 9-11. Um, has it been a, been a similar situation with Turkey? I think there's there's been some of that. Um, 
you know, like I, I said, the, the, the parliament had, had issued this strong statement in terms of opposing the coup. Uh, tellingly, this, this past week, the Turkish justice minister was in Washington for, for talks with the U.S. government about the extradition of, of Gulen and was joined by, uh, by MPs, by members of parliament from the AKP, from the CHP, and from one of the other opposition parties, the, the MHP. So even the opposition parties are, are united in this desire to, to deal with, with the, the Gulenist situation. And so I think there there has been broad-based support on on that front, um, and I think there's there's also broad concern within society about the the situation with with Gulenis generally. Um, you know, your your comparison with with 9/11 I think is is also a good one in terms of of how to think about the purges and what's happening in in Turkey right now. If you'll remember after 9/11. You know, the Patriot Act was passed. There was a lot more government surveillance. And so it really sparked this debate here about civil liberties and how much of our civil liberties are we willing to give up in the name of security. Mm-hmm. And I think similarly in, in Turkey, um, you know, in order to have a, a fully healthy democracy, there needs to be this this conversation about what criteria the government's using to pursue these Gulenists, how far are people comfortable with the government pursuing these these Gulenists, and, and how do you want to approach that situation? And the fact that the government has not been transparent about the criteria that they're using to, to pursue some of these Gulenists is is what's causing some of the concern, I think, in, in Turkey now. So I think we look at this from the outside and think this is terrible that the government's firing all of these people. If you look at it from the Turkish perspective, I don't think there's there's generally a lot of affection within society generally for Gulenis. I think there's support for the government uh, pursuing people that, that were involved in this. I think where the concern comes in is one, not being clear on what the government's criteria is for, for going after the Gulenis, and second, the government using this as a means of attacking or pursuing opponents more generally in terms of, of liberals, um, Kurds, and, and others. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, first things that President Erdogan did after the coup was to derogate the Turkey's responsibility to the European Convention on Human Rights um, in order to basically create some emergency decrees on, on detention and, and a few other things, as I mentioned before. Um, that seems to be one uh, way that the uh, Turkey's international stance has been affected by the coup. Uh, I'm sure it's been affected in other ways. Can you get into, has the coup changed uh, Erdogan's uh, approach to its, his international affairs? I think one of the the most striking things is that Turkey's military incursion into Syria happened in the the wake of the the coup attempt. Uh, I think there has been some resistance by Turkish military to get involved in in Syria, uh, and soon after the the coup attempt. Um, the, the involvement of, of Turkey in, in northwest Syria happened. So so I think that's that's been one manifestation. Uh, second, there's been this rapprochement between Turkey and Russia. Uh, some of this was, was already somewhat in the pipeline, but I think Erdogan has been unhappy with what he perceives as a slow reaction from the U.S. and, and Europe in terms of condemning the coup, not being as supportive as, as he would like them to be. And I think he also feels, you know, more isolated and vulnerable and and needs friends. And so I think 
having Russia on your side is helpful and also in terms of what he wanted to do militarily in Syria because of Russia's involvement there in that northwest base. He really needed uh, at least implicit acquiescence by, by the Russians to, to be able to, to be involved there. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, well, Turkey has been a major U.S. ally for uh, at least since World War II. Uh, you know, you think about the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, it was almost as much about Turkey as it was about Cuba because of uh, U.S. missiles based in Turkey at the time. Um, that relationship seems to have broken down uh, somewhat with between the Erdogan administration and the Obama administration. Um what is the state of the relationship between the United States and Turkey right now? I, Turkey is is always going to remain an important partner of the U.S. It's, it's a NATO ally. It's the second largest military within NATO. Uh, and it also occupies a very precarious and also significant geography in terms of being a bridge between Europe and and the Middle East and and Asia. I mean, you look at at where it's situated, it's got conflicts happening right now in Syria and Iraq. Uh, Certainly from the EU's perspective, it's it's a conduit for a lot of the the refugees who are are moving uh, in that space. And so we're always going to need Turkey. Uh, I think certainly there's a strain in relations right now between the the U.S. and and Turkey, and this is largely twofold at the moment. First, as we've been talking about, is everything following the the coup attempt. As I mentioned, Fethullah Gulen is currently resident in the United States, and the Turks have asked for his extradition. Uh, the Turks see this very much in political terms, in the sense that we have a bilateral relationship. They see him as a threat, and we should hand them over. Uh, for the U.S., uh, this is seen very much in legal terms, that we need to have a legal process by which we review the evidence and identify probable cause before he extradited. So these different interpretations and different approaches to this situation is is causing tension. Uh, Second, there has been tension for a while over our approach to Syria, uh, and in particular who the U.S. is supporting militarily in in Syria and how we want to best address uh, the pursuit of of ISIS and and what happens in terms of, of Assad's future. I think the way the U.S. government has responded has been right in the sense that there has been a considerable uptick over the last month or two in high-level engagement. And I think as in any relationship, when you have differences, the way you need to address those differences is by talking and engaging more rather than than less. Uh, Both the secretary and the president called their Turkish counterparts in the days immediately following the the coup. Uh, Vice President Biden was there in late August, uh, which was a significant high-level visit to show U.S. support. Uh, The president saw Erdogan on the margins of the G20. The vice president met with Erdogan on the margins of the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, And then this week, the the Turkish justice minister is in town. Uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter was was there last week, I believe. So there is a a significant amount of engagement that's that's happening at at very high levels between the U.S. and, and Turkey as a means of trying to work through these these issues that are causing the the tension in the relationship. So let's let's get into Syria. It seems well, Syria is obviously an extraordinarily complicated uh, situation. Uh, but from Turkey's perspective, it seems to uh, be complicated mostly because of the Kurdish minority population in Turkey. Um, the Kurds uh, are 
eighteen percent of the population of Turkey. They um, they actually are a fairly decent sized uh, political force. Um, and uh, the historical relationship between the Turkish government and the Kurds has not been great. Um, but there are a lot of different intricacies in the region dealing with the Kurds. Can you talk about that? Can you maybe distinguish between, um, you know, the, the, the Kurdish people in Turkey, the Kurds in Iraq, Syria, PKK, HDP, Every uh, every acronym that you can you can think of. Um, what what what's the situation? I Kurdology is is certainly very very complicated, and I think part of the the challenge in the discourse that's that's happened in in the U.S. is that all of the Kurds tend to be lumped together in in one basket. And like you said, I think that that sometimes causes people to not understand some of the nuances and 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 why Turkey is is as concerned as as they are. Uh, one thing I think to understand is that there's a bit of a power struggle happening within the region within various Kurdish factions about primacy for control. Uh, so within Iraq, uh, you've got two different sets of, of Kurds. One is the, 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 the KDP with, with links to Barzani in, in Iraq. Those are Kurds that, that Turkey is a bit more amenable to, to working with. That's the Peshmerga that's involved in a lot of the, the fight that's, that's now happening um, uh, within uh, Mosul. Uh, then there are the the PUK Kurds in Iraq, and those have links to the the PKK in Turkey. Uh, within Turkey, you've got the PKK, which was founded in in 1978 and essentially has been the the military wing of the the Kurds. You have the HDP, which is a political party in Turkey, which is seeking to promote Kurdish political rights through the the political process. Mm-hmm. Then in Syria, you have the YPG, which is the military wing of the, the Kurds. And the Turks will argue that the YPG and the PKK are the same organization. And of course, the PKK is a terrorist group as determined by the United States. Yes. Uh, the U.S. had designated the, the PKK in 1997, the EU in 2002, as a foreign terrorist organization, uh, given a history of violence against Turkish military. Uh, and to date, I think over 40,000 Turks have, have died at the hands of the, the PKK. Uh, the Turkish government, certainly in retaliation against the PKK, has, has been responsible for the loss of, of lives of, of PKK fighters as, as well. Uh, but yes, I mean, the, the PKK is designated by the U.S. and, and by the EU as a, a terrorist organization. So the Turks don't make any distinction between the PKK in Turkey and the YPG in um Syria in terms of, of Kurdish organizations. Now, just to add a few more acronyms, there's the, the PYD, which is the political arm of the YPG in Syria. Sure. And then there's the SDF, uh, which is an umbrella organization that the U.S. has been supporting in Syria, which includes YPG fighters as well mm-hmm. as Arab fighters. So the tension that the Turks have had with the U.S. approach in Syria is that the U.S. has been working with the SDF, which includes YPG fighters, uh, in terms of our military campaign against uh, ISIS in Syria. Uh, From the Turkish perspective, 
that's essentially the same as us providing support to the PKK, uh, which we've designated as a terrorist organization and which is responsible for the death of, of thousands of, of Turks. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what makes them unhappy. Now, uh, from on the other hand, I suppose, uh, you have Turkey uh, launching military campaigns in support of groups like al-Nusra, which was at least formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda, um, obviously a terrorist group, obviously uh, not in the United States' best interests. Uh, Turkey has obviously been a key partner in the United States' efforts in Syria, especially with the uh, ability to use uh, the air base, and I'm going to totally mispronounce it, Incirclic? Incirclic. Incirclic. Incirclic, yeah. I tried. I I knew I would fail. CC is like a J. (laughs) Um, So uh, that has been a critical component of our, or the United States' operations. Um, But it still seems like... uh, there's, there's uh, basically we're operating at cross purposes, bombing essentially each other's uh, uh, allies in Syria. I not entirely at at cross purposes. I, you know, I think we both agree that Assad is problematic and must go. Uh, we also agree that ISIS is problematic and needs to be eradicated. I think a lot of the differences that we have had have been in terms of the prioritization of threats. Uh, the U.S. the number one priority has been clearing ISIS. Uh, we see that as the biggest national security challenge to the U.S. and and also to Europe. Uh, Erdogan from the beginning was very focused on the removal of Assad. And so depending on who you prioritize, it's going to affect somewhat your military strategy or your political strategy in terms of dealing with the situation on, on the ground. Uh, as you said, it's it's a complicated mix of actors and proxies that are operating within Syria. Uh, you know, I, the the Gulf and, and other countries also and, and Russia also have their preferred proxies on the ground within Syria. And so this mosaic of actors operating within Syria is part of what makes the situation so complicated and and difficult to, to resolve. Recently, President Erdogan has, uh, on a couple of occasions, um, talked about the Treaty of Lausanne. Um, which set the borders of Turk of modern Turkey, um, and he has basically cast doubt on it, saying that it made the country too small. Um, also recently, he's gotten into hot water with the the Iraqi government because he's expressed a desire to be involved with the battle for Mosul. Um, is there some kind of uh, do you think there's any chance that the president of Turkey has grander ambitions in terms of uh, the the region and what Turkey's role in it is? I think Turkey, for multiple reasons, feels a great sense of insecurity right now, both because of the internal threat from Gulen, as we were discussing, uh, and also, not surprisingly, the fact that there's major military conflicts happening in Syria and Iraq on, on both sides of the, the border. So as we were discussing in Syria, there's multiple different actors involved and various approaches to what the solution should be. Similarly, within Iraq, there are also multiple factions and multiple uh, ways of, of solving the, the problem. Uh, I think in, in terms of some of the specifics and the comments that, that Erdogan has made about 
Mosul. Uh, Turkey has had troops at this military base of Bashika since March of 2015. So Bashika is within Iraqi territory, but it's controlled by the Kurdish regional government. As we talked about before, Turkey has a good relationship with the Kurdish regional government uh, and so may have reached some understanding with the Kurdish regional government about these forces being there. But an agreement with the Kurdish regional government doesn't necessarily mean that the central government in Baghdad is on board with this. So part of this gets at tension between the, the Kurdish region and the, the Baghdad central government. Uh, it also gets at tensions over who is involved in this military campaign because you've got Kurdish Peshmerga who are operating on the ground. You have Turkey who has been training some Peshmerga and also some Shia militia groups at this base in Bashika. Uh, but then you also have the central government in Iraq who has been working with Shia militia. So in terms of developing a military strategy, similar to what you were saying in Syria in terms of there being lots of different proxies, the same thing is playing out in Iraq and specifically in Mosul. Everybody agrees with the general need to get rid of ISIS, but everybody wants their particular proxy to be involved in the fight because people are thinking ahead about what this means in terms of who ultimately controls the territory that's left behind once ISIS is cleared out. Do you think there are things that the United States uh, and or other world powers or groups, um, multilateral groups, uh, should be doing right now that aren't doing about what's happening with Turkey, re either respecting Syria or respecting the um, the democratic governance, uh, uh, the breakdown in democratic governance that's happening? I think, as I said earlier, there is a need for constant high-level engagement. Uh, Secretary Carter, as I said, was in uh, Turkey recently to talk with them about military strategy. Uh, at the end of October, on the margins of a NATO defense ministerial meeting, there was a conversation between the Turkish, French, and the U.S. defense ministers to, to talk about this. Um, and, and certainly, I think all of these are, are prime topics of conversations when senior U.S. officials engage with their Turkish counterparts. Uh, certainly everything that's happening militarily in Syria and Iraq is of primary focus to everybody right now because of these ongoing campaigns to take Mosul and then soon, I think, to, to take Raqqa. Uh, but I think there, there also is uh, attention being paid to what's happening democratically in Turkey, and that's something that 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 continues to be discussed with them. Uh, Vice President Biden was in Turkey earlier this year and actually made very strong public comments about some of his concerns about the the trends that were happening there in terms of crackdown on the opposition, uh, some of the the journalists that were in jail. Uh, European leaders have made very similar comments. The the French Foreign Minister was was recently in Turkey and and made some comments which irritated the Turks about the difference in the state of emergency that. The French had versus the one that the, the Turks had. So I think in terms of both private meetings and also public commentary, uh, this is something that everybody's watching and, and is going to continue engaging with them on. Well, Dr. Amanda Sloat is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Southern Europe and Eastern Mediterranean Affairs at the U.S. State Department. Dr. Sloat, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle. 
You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week. Thank you.